70 years ago this summer, the ceasefire agreement freezing the Korean War was signed. It was the last time the United States and China fought one another. Following communist North Korea's invasion of the South in the summer of 1950, and a few months thereafter, China's intervention in the war, a period of dramatic and devastating battlefield maneuver had been succeeded by two years of grueling, largely static stalemate. A battlefield stalemate that was largely self-imposed by the Truman administration, which had focused on keeping the conflict localized. This summer, I led a class for the Hertog Foundation on the Korean War with Congressman Mike Gallagher, in which we used the classic history T.R. Fehrenbach's This Kind of War and asked our students and ourselves the question, if the Korean War is America's forgotten war, why does the Chinese Communist Party remember it so well? In this episode, Congressman Gallagher and I reflect on our class, on the war, and on what it all means for dealing with China today. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. For maps, photos, and more School of War content, follow along on Instagram, at School of War. Just tap the link in the show notes and subscribe. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to be joined today by Congressman Mike Gallagher who represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. He chairs the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. And he is a man who the Chinese Communist Party refers to as, quote, well, someone who, quote, his arrogance and madness are comparable to that of Douglas MacArthur, end quote. Congressman Gallagher, thank you so much for joining the show. Well, as I pointed out, when we were recently collaborating in a class, Douglas MacArthur is in fact technically a Wisconsinite, having moved back to Milwaukee to get his appointment to West Point, leveraging his family connections, and his father fought for Wisconsin Regiment in the Civil War. Uh, this is so. this is something I learned. For, is what we're going to talk about today is this class we just taught together for the Hertog Foundation in Washington, D.C. on the Korean War. And something I, I learned from you that I, I confess I did not know is that Wisconsin is apparently at the center of American foreign policy and Cold War history, and pretty, mu pretty much everything is, is the impression I got from you. This is, of course, an, a highly objective assessment on, on my part. It just happens to be true that at every major junction in history, Wisconsin has been there. Uh, from the moment a, a young Arthur MacArthur picked up the colors in Chattanooga uh, and shouted on Wisconsin, to the moment his son was helping to productively win World War I, to the moment that the great and underappreciated John Blaine voted against the Kellogg-Brand Pack in the interwar period, recognizing the naivety of outlawing war, to MacArthur again playing a role in World War II. I could go on. George Kennan, Wisconsinite, sort of for, although he was the subject of much criticism from you in this class. It's true. <laughs> formulating the doctrine of, of containment. Mel Laird, great, one of the greatest secretaries of defense of all time, whose gavel I wield. I, I, a gavel of his, the Marshfield Clinic, was kind of, to give me and who wrote me a letter, a couple letters before he died. So the more you study history, the more you realize that Wisconsin is responsible for every major success that America has had on the world stage. Well, this can be the subject of the next Hertog Foundation class that you teach is why Wisconsin matters even more than you thought it did. Can I ask you, you, you first raised the issue of this class 
to me, and it was already in your mind as a, as a Korean War class. Was that, did that come from the Hertog Foundation? Was, was it you who decided to do Korea? And, and how did you decide to do that, if so? It was me, and it kind of goes back to the early stages of the pandemic, where like many, I was, you know, we were trapped inside, and I started to notice, we were at a high watermark for what's called Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, uh, which is a variety of Chinese Communist Party apparatchiks really spreading anti-American propaganda, primarily on American social media apps that their own citizens don't have access to. And of course, what was galling about this was the fact that the virus came from China, most likely from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The Chinese Communist Party undoubtedly did everything possible to cover it up. And yet they had the temerity to use the pandemic to blame us, blame Fort Detrick for the outbreak of the virus, attack America. This was also sort of the time we had a lot of violent riots in America related to racial issues. And the Chinese Communist Party seized upon that to propagate the narrative that America is an evil, racist, neo-colonial hellscape. So then I started to wonder, why are they called Wolf Warrior Diplomats? Sorry for the wind up here. I'll get to the point, which led me to watch Wolf Warrior 1 and Wolf Warrior 2, which at the time were the highest grossing Chinese movies of all time. They are action movies that make a, a Michael Bay film seem subtle in comparison. And then all of a sudden I discovered that those movies were supplanted by another Chinese movie that coincided later with the 100th anniversary of the founding of the party, which is called The Battle at Lake Changit. And what was interesting about this was it was a retelling of the Battle of Chosen Reservoir, which every Marine like yourself and myself knows about Frozen Chosen. It, it holds a hallowed place in the history of the Marine Corps, a, a historic fighting retreat. And I, I, I started to realize there was this emerging cult of the Korean War inside of China that notably talked about the Korean War as a, as a great victory uh, for China. And obviously as a, a war that MacArthur started, ignoring entirely the North Korean invasion. And this narrative that Xi Jinping himself was telling the party and the people was that this was a moment when a technologically inferior China defeated the technologically superior America. And then I started to pull the string on that and just became fascinated by the way in which Chinese kids, Chinese students were being forced to learn about the war. Uh, Xi himself was referencing the war, praising Mao's brave decision to cross the Yalu River and by throwing one punch, showing that 100 punches could be avoided. So I really kind of became interested in it in that regard, which led me to then start studying books I should have studied when I was in the Marine Corps, notably a book called This Kind of War by T.R. Fehrenbach, which had been on the Marine Corps, the Commandant's reading list for a long time when I was on active duty, but I had never really studied it until recent years. And after reading that book, I was just, I was, I was hooked. And I, I've just found the Korean War fascinating as this moment in the early Cold War where we're caught off guard, the Cold War turns hot, I was fascinated by the fact that it is it is a forgotten war. Many people gloss over it. The history is poorly understood. It doesn't receive as much attention. And so all those reasons led me to become obsessed with the Korean War and then jump at the opportunity to church to teach this seminar uh, for the Hertog Foundation. I will say one final thing. I quickly realized that particularly when I was put in charge of this committee, I would have no time to teach this course on my own. And so I had to find someone who would be kind enough to help me and carry the the heavy load. And having exhausted 10 other alternatives, I was then finally forced <laughs> to come to you, Aaron, and enlist your services. But it was a really a remarkable experience. I would say it's sort of revealing about you, how you spent your 2020. I think most people, at least I read in the New York Times, most people were baking. But you were, you were reviewing Chinese propaganda films and rereading old texts about infantry combat. Yes, I was. Well, I was also interested in like this confluence between the CCP propaganda 
and a lot of the woke narratives that were coming out of the sort of radical left in America. And then it, that led me to write an article in National Review talking about this issue of, of wokeism in the military and sort of the the growth of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, programs, and some of just the garbage social science that all this was was based upon. And so, so I don't know. Uh, I've also, I should say, I've always been fascinated by the early Cold War when I did graduate school. Uh, though I was in a political science program, I was kind of a, a historian at heart, and all of my case studies were early Cold War related. A Truman case study, two Eisenhower case studies. I spent about a month at the Truman Library in Independence. Missouri, and then about three months of my life total in Abilene, Kansas, doing archival research there, which is a great place to do archival research because there was nothing else going on. Props to the Holiday Inn Express right out the highway there. <laughs> my friend, Glenn Shank, who I met on the golf course, a 70-year-old man, he was my only friend. So I got a lot of work done. It was very productive. But I've just always been fascinated by this period post-World War II, the early Cold War, where we were sort of trying to understand the enemy we faced. And I, as I pointed out in this course, and this is another bias of mine, we tend to look back on this with rose-colored glasses, you know, as if, if only we could go back to the heady days of the Cold War, where there was a bipartisan foreign policy consensus, and things were simpler. It was us versus the Soviets and the bipolar world. But the more you dig into the archives, uh, the more you realize things were, were really complex uh, at this moment. It was incredibly dangerous. And you think about that period from really 1949, let's say, to 50, 51. I mean, you have the Soviet nuclear test in 49, just punctures our sense of you know, peacetime dividend, we can bring the boys home. People start freaking out. You have a series of domestic spying cases that pop up uh, in America. And then, of course, you have the outbreak of hot war on the Korean Peninsula, which then forces us into a war, which we never really kind of fought before. The closest analog, at least in T.R. Fahrenbach's telling, would be sort of the 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 wars, you know, for, for settling the rest of America with various Native American tribes. And so I don't know, I've always just found it to be a fascinating period and the people involved in it very fascinating. Well, I don't know if you agree with this, but as, as we were preparing for and then teaching the class, I came around to the view that the world in 2023 looks more and more like the world of the late 40s and early 50s from a strategic perspective than I would have cer certainly said 10 years ago. I mean, on at least two grounds, right? One, there's Chinese-Russian collusion and cooperation both then and now. To a much greater degree than existed in between, and then two, I, you know, obviously, you know, expansion is China. China set straightforwardly on on territorial expansion. Uh, do, do you do you do you agree with the general assessment? I agree, but I'm also aware that having spent so much time in the period from 1947 to 1961, which, by the way, when I was single, was a real great. Open <laughs> <line on> <laughs> I'm surprised. Can I say I'm surprised you're talking about it? I mean, I, are we going to ruin your political career here if I reveal you, you're speaking very vaguely about graduate school? You're 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 a PhD. You're Doctor Congressman Gallagher. You you have a thesis and everything. But I'm it's, sorry, I come from a family of actual physicians, and so they will they refuse to refer to me as doctor. I get no respect in my own house. My dad my dad says if you're on a plane and someone yells, "Is there a doctor on the plane?" And you can't answer yes to that question, then it doesn't count. So, yeah. having got got no respect from my own family, I don't mind you pointing out the fact that I wasted my GI Bill and a lot of my life on getting a credential. Although I found the archival research fascinating, I guess what I was trying to say is that just my bias is that I I see parallels everywhere between the early Cold War and I have made the argument that we are in the early stages of a new Cold War with communist China. Now, it's not perfectly analogous to the old Cold War with the Soviet Union for obvious reasons. We were never economically 
entangled with the Soviet Union. Uh, these are different countries, different enemies. But I, I think there are, are the the comparison is helpful both for the similarities and the differences it elucidates. More to the point, I I what I do in Congress, or at least my main effort, as I conceive it, is to play a part in preventing war, to deter war. And I'm always interested in, in studying deterrence failure like that we saw on the Korean Peninsula in 1950 in order to adduce lessons that we can apply to the present day. And perhaps that's a Sisyphusian task. It's, it, they're just too different, both in, in time and, and place. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's important to study history in, in an effort to learn lessons so as not to, to repeat them. And, and that's what another reason why I'm drawn to the period. Well, we should get into those lessons here in a second. And we wrote, I should say for, for listeners, Congressman Gallagher and I wrote a piece for foreign affairs, which you can get with your, with your one free foreign affairs article a month, which I know everyone avails themselves of at the website now. And, and we, can, we can talk about it here in the podcast as a supplement. But before we do, just because you raised it, let's talk a little bit about this kind of war in T.R. Farenbach, who is this, you know, he, he seems to be to be a slightly crazy person. The book is, is a, both a crazy and a wonderful book. It's, it's kind of unlike any other history of the, of the Korean War you, you might come across. What, what about it spoke so powerfully to you? A few things. One, maybe most importantly, because this is not always the case with history books, or books in general, it's very well written. Now, he has a few kind of stylistic things that one can quibble with and may and I'm I'm certain strict historians do quibble with because the style kind of bleeds into the accuracy at some point but he's a very gifted writer and it's very powerful the way he lays things out and I think when you're treating any subject as complex as the Korean War or war in general it's very difficult to choose where do you focus and almost unlike any other book that I've encountered on this war or any other he really does a good job of zooming in and out and going from the tactical and giving you a sense of what a, a squad leader or fire team, a mem- just a member of a fire team in Korea would have experienced. And then zooming up to what someone at, you know, division command experienced and then zooming up and giving you the MacArthur Truman level of, of the war. And so it's just, it's just fun to read in, in a way that I don't, I don't think it's true of a lot of histories of the period. The second thing, I mean, perhaps his his argument throughout the book reflects my own bias, which is that if we're going to ask young men to fight and die on behalf of the country, then they need to be trained in a pretty hardcore manner. And we need to do this without any illusions as to the nature of the task we're putting in front of them. Fehrenbach has this argument that, you know, part of the reason we were unprepared for, for Korea was that we didn't understand that, you know, you need to have legions in order to patrol the frontiers because, in his phrase, they're tigers in this world. And we were laboring under the delusion that we could bring the boys home and and we made a decision. Uh, and he attributes a lot of this to the Doolittle Board to civilianize the military. And uh, a lot of the young men that found themselves on the Korean Peninsula just simply weren't physically, mentally or emotionally prepared for the type of combat uh, that we put them into. And I see a lot of I, I have concerns about politicization and civilianization and lowering of standards in the present day military. Beyond that, maybe it's my bias as a Marine. I think Fahrenbach's pretty kind to the Marine Corps throughout the book, and he's not as kind to uh, some of the other units. But I don't know. Let me ask that same question to you, because we spent a portion of our final class talking about why this book endures. And it does. And it's not 
it's not what one would call the most accurate or comprehensive history of the Korean War, but it has a unique appeal that persists to the present day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give an answer. I'll also say, you know, on the question of Marines, Frame Box, definitely kind of Marines. I, I didn't realize I had not watched the battle at Lake Changin before preparing for this class with you. That movie, in its way, is also strangely kind to Marines, which I was not anticipating at all. Kind is the wrong word. Respectful. It's respectful of Marines. And the big climactic battle scene actually really doesn't focus on the 1st Marine Division at all. It sort of passes over that in almost polite silence and, and focuses on the, the 31st Infantry Regiment and the, the, the soldiers who were on the east side of the reservoir and just got, in, in history, unfortunately, you know, pretty much demolished by, by the, the, the Chinese volunteers who were attacking them. I thought, that, I thought that was interesting. I don't fully know what to read from it, but yeah, go ahead. There's one comment. There is a scene. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the Battle of Lake Changin yet, if you have three and a half hours of your life that you're prepared never to get back, there's a moment when Ned Almond, who, well, I will say Ned Almond in almost every telling of the Korean War, to include historical fiction, I think one of the, Jeff or Michael Shera wrote a, a, a fictionalized account of it, comes off kind of as the villain on the American side. There are other histories like Max Hastings where he gets a more balanced treatment, but at, there's one scene in the movie where, ne where Ned Almond goes to O.P. Smith, the Marine general, who's kind of like the only <laughs> American who they treat nicely. And it's like, I, I'm going to scalp you for this. I'll scalp you. I'm pretty sure he never threatened to do that. But then they <laughs> set it up at the end where they kind of have Opie, Opie Smith, who they treat with some respect, grudgingly salutes the frozen, brave Chinese soldiers who sacrificed their lives. It's like the message is not, yeah, it's not so subtle. It's like this, this one respectable American warrior realized the superiority of the Chinese troops on the battlefield. So yeah. even in their respect, there's an artful bit of propaganda going on, or yeah. an artful bit of propaganda. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's all, it's all pretty blunt. It's pretty broad, I would say. I haven't seen the sequel. I don't know if you've seen the sequel. The sequel, I don't know if that gets into the Marines at all, but certainly in the in the first edition, not so much. Yeah, on the book, on Fehrenbach, look, I, I read it years and years ago when I was a Marine, and coming back to it now, I you know I think one of the reasons why it's so compelling is it is, it, as you point out, it's this polemic. It's almost it's written in this almost prophetic tone, and I, I mean that in in the sense of like he he's like a con, a condemning Old Testament prophet who has been let down, and he's speaking on behalf of those who have been let down by their country, and and the, he brings such passion and force to making that argument, and making that argument is definitely his his first priority. He's quite open. He says in the the preface to the book that his historical method is is probably not something that would I don't I, I don't have the exact words right in front of me but you know his 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 method relies to a degree on on you know sort of pastiche and, and paraphrase in a way that academic history would not permit and I verified this on a few occasions as I was looking up stuff that we discussed in our our foreign affairs piece and I realized that there he there's a, he has a quote from Truman on the issue of prisoner repatriation which of course becomes this huge issue in the war Truman is not simply going to send all enemy prisoners of war home because something like half of them don't want to go home. And Fehrenbach has a quote from Truman in the book on this issue, which I then looked up. And Truman's actual words are basically complete. They're in the New York Times at the time. They're completely different. The spirit of them is the same. He's fairly quoting the spirit of what Truman was, was saying as part of this famous incident. Um, but for whatever reason, just didn't feel particularly obliged to, to match him word for word, as I'm sure um, when you were you were in graduate school, your supervisors would have insisted that that you do. Um, but his his passion, you, you know, on the issues that he is he's arguing about is has got this like compelling quality that makes the book kind of unputdownable. And I would just say, you know, on the question of of him not quite meeting academic history standards, there's if you really want to 
if you, I, I'm going to nerd out here for a second and make a reference to, to Aristotle, who has this famous comment that poetry or literature is more philosophical than history because history is full of stuff that just happens. Like sometimes someone just walks out in the street and gets hit by a bus. It doesn't really mean anything. It just, it just happens. Whereas in poetry, everything happens for a reason. Everything is part of some constructed whole. And Fehrenbach is kind of taking history and, and finding the finding the poetry in it. He is he is finding ways to tell a story about something that's important to him without, I think, in fairness to him and in defense of him, without like misrepresenting the fundamentals of things. He is getting at, in a way, the deeper truth of things through through his method, even if it wouldn't pass, you know, the committee standards of you know of a PhD committee today. This is why this is such a rewarding experience. And let me preface this by saying I have no reason to blow smoke here, Aaron, because I think I've already achieved multiple guest status on this podcast. You are, you are, you are, you're a friend of the pod, friend of the pod. And, and, and so at this point, I'm just going to come back whenever I want. But you having taught at the Naval Academy, I was. I was sitting there, we kind of divided up each day, you'd take the first half, or I'd take the first half, and, and vice versa. And just to watch you teach and your pedagogical method was very, I learned a ton from it. And as someone who's always wanted to teach and never had that opportunity in grad school, because I wasn't going full time and very much wants to do it again, I learned a ton just from watching you work. You had this one riff, which you channeled your your no fun undergrad great books experience, where you went from like Hobbes to communism in five minutes that I wish I could have just, I could have videotaped that. It was one of the more yeah. brilliant things I've ever seen. I should also throw something out. I had no, I didn't really know, having not taught, I, I didn't know kind of what the quality of, of students would be. They were exceptional. I mean, these, I agree. Our, our students were phenomenal. They had all done the reading. They were eager to participate. A lot of them brought in outside materials and it was really, really cool to see them not only respond to the text, but I think get into the period and tease out both the, not just the strategic issues at play, but I think one thing you also helped bring to them was a sense of the tactical and what it means to be in a rifle platoon or in a rifle company and how that relates to all these divisions and basic sort of elements of, of being in a firefight that your average college student doesn't know anything about for, for good reason. So for that reason and many others, it was very rewarding. Well, you're, you're far too kind about me. I, I appreciate it. And I will say in, in, in return that no one who saw you teaching would have thought you were teaching for the first time. But we'll, we'll stop. We should stop saying nice things about each other because the, the listeners are going are gonna to turn us off. But you're, I, I agree. You're totally right about the students who were genuinely impressive. And if I may, I'm going to give a shout out to A.J. Diltz, who told me in the course of the week that he's a huge School of War fan. So, A.J., thanks for listening. There uh, were no grades, A.J., so why would you say that? <laughs> you points. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but he was one. I mean, it was a really impressive group. And they they very gratifyingly accepted the premise of the class, which is that this stuff matters. It matters to anyone focused on on US China relations today or contemporary events today. And I, you know, like on the military stuff, nobody, I mean, nobody studies military history in college anymore. I mean, not like it was a core requirement 50 years ago, but there it was not unusual to find scholars of of, of military history, of strategic questions, and of political history that kind of verged into high-level military history on a regular basis. And that is just less and less the case on campus day. Honestly, it's one of the premises of this podcast is that this is a gap that, that needs to be filled. So I do think even for kids who are not going to serve, there is some value to just like knowing what a 
you know, what a regiment is and what a division is and, you know, you know, what do these things mean and how does, how does air support actually work, you know, just at the very top level, because they could find themselves as policymakers one day and they all are citizens and are all going to be voting one way or the other. And I, uh, another th- sort of Fehrenbach theme, and I know we kind of want to get into some of the meta things that happen in and around the class as opposed to just the text itself. But another theme I would argue is that notwithstanding advances in technology, and here the Korean War is a bit of a dichotomy because on the one hand, we're, we're in the nuclear age, so there were dramatic advancements in technology. But I believe at the end of the book, in the appendix, when he's describing all the weapon systems, he makes the point that Really, we were just fighting with technology left over from World War II, with the exception of maybe one experimental aircraft. There weren't the, sort of the same massive leaps forward in technology that you'd find on the battlefield. Part of the story of the early part, phases of the war, too, are, are, are the forces are horribly unequipped to do things like stop. And this is the story of Task Force Smith, right? Just stop a, a file of tanks that's lazily drifting down the road where you could easily have stopped them if you had. I think at one point he says there's not one anti-tank mine on the Korean Peninsula at that point. Correct. But a Fehrenbach theme is just sort of there are enduring realities about warfare, which involve a contest of will and endurance between men in the mud. And I say that because at the time the war was fought between men and obviously in the all-volunteer force present day, it's men and women, that, you know, you, you, he has this, this, one of the more famous quotes in books is like, you can, you know, you can pulverize earth, you can bomb it, but still you need to have men in the mud. And I've always found that to be attractive. I think it's fair to say that technology can train can change the character of war without changing the the enduring nature of war. And Fehrenbach really brings that out throughout the story. So the story of Task Force Smith, if, if listeners don't know, is it's this battalion-sized force that's sent into South Korea to stop the North Korean invasion. They set up this roadblock in early July to stop the North Korean assault. Well, not stop it, but delay it at least. And they do not delay it much at all. A column of Soviet tanks, Soviet-made tanks operated by North Korean soldiers drives right through the middle of them the following a follow-on infantry forces pretty much take them apart. They have no anti-tank mines, as you point out, and they have, I think what Fehrenbach says is one-third of all the the anti-tank, you know, shoulder-launched ammunition in Japan, which is six rounds, six rounds, which are such, they're so obsolete that they're bouncing off the sides of the Soviet tanks. So it's it's a disaster. You have soldiers who, who you know, run away from the battlefield in onesies and twosies. Some of them make it to the east coast of Korea after, you know, a few days or weeks. Some of them make it to the west coast. Others retrograde to the south. Can I can I ask, as we were going through this, what were your what were your sort of top moments of the Korean War that you think that people should have in mind and maybe most people don't know about? Well, you referenced Task Force Smith, which MacArthur infamously refers to as an arrogant display of strength that he feels will intimidate the North Koreans. And of course, it is arrogant, but it does not intimidate uh, the North Koreans. There's also another task force incident that doesn't get as much attention, which is that of Task Force Faith, which at the time, elements of the 1st Marine Division are pushing up sort of to the northwest of Chosen Reservoir. They're on the east side, and there's this striking moment in the book where Ned Almond, who is in charge of 10th Corps at the time and obviously carrying out MacArthur's intent of pushing as rapidly as possible north of the 38th parallel. This is after the remarkably successful landing at Incheon, which we can talk about, you know, and, and there are various elements of the military, MacArthur foremost among them, who want to go as far north as possible. Some of them even urinate in the Yalu River, according to Fehrenbach and some other accounts. But there's a there's an army task force on the east side, ultimately commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith, I believe. And there's this moment in the book when Allman flies in on a helicopter and he says, 
I have three silver stars and he's, I'm giving one to you. And he's like, who should I give the other two silver stars to? For those who aren't in the military listening to this, like that's a, that's a big deal to get a silver star. Like that's a pretty big award right there. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, he, he, he finds a, someone who works in the mess who just happens to be walking yeah. by, there, like a, a cook or a there's waiter. A, there's a lieutenant or an officer, I think it's a lieutenant, sitting on a crate nearby. He was wounded the previous day. He tells that guy to get over here. And then, yeah, then a, a mess steward is walking by. And these are the two guys he grabs. So he just hastily pins silver stars on them. And then Faith then throws his silver star into the snow, showing his disdain for Allman and then Allman flies away and then task force faith is slaughtered all like absolutely slaughtered afterwards. And then that leads to another incident, which you probably know better than I, where the Marines are, are having this debate about, okay, we're surrounded. How do we possibly fight our way, fight our way out of this? Yeah. There I'll see to you. For no, superior there's knowledge. this vivid scene in Fehrenbach where, you know, the 1st Marine Division is spread out all along this road running up the other side of the reservoir from where Faith is. And the Marines have been moving slowly and cautiously because the regimental commanders and General Smith are, are all a little skeptical of what's going on. They're skeptical of Allman. They're skeptical of MacArthur driving of the Yalu. So they've kind of been dragging their feet a little bit. And then, yeah, they get cut off. I mean, they are dramatically surrounded by Chinese forces and realize they're going to need to walk back down this road. The same stuff is happening all over Korea at this point, this last week of November, 1950. And on, you know, on the east side of the reservoir, you have faith getting demolished. You've got the second infantry division, which we, the army, the second infantry division, which we talked about in class on the other side of the sort of central mountain range of, of Korea in a very similar situation, having to go back down a road to get away from the Chinese and sort of Fehrenbach goes into their planning and operations order for that. And it's essentially just an order of march. They get an order and they drive down the road, get trapped and get demolished. So the scene that you make reference to or is that the commanders of the of the fifth and seventh Marine regiments who are the, the regiments most advanced down the road, who are who are the most likely to get wiped out should this situation continue to to fall apart. Because Chesty Puller's still south. Chesty Puller's right? the first yeah. regiment commander and he's back on the other side of the pass. They've got to get across. There's, there's a yeah. company holding this pass, Fox 27, and they are up there alone and unafraid, just fighting off human wave attacks. And these two regiments have got to get up and through this pass. And so Murray and Litzenberg, the two the two commanders, are, are chatting, and they basically say to each other, you know, the Chinese, they're, they're doing these night attacks coming across the high ground. I'll bet they don't think that we can do night ridge attacks, but that's what we're going to do. And they just agree right then and there, standing on the road, that they're going to, in the dark, Go back down this road with Marine companies deployed on either side of the road, just running the ridges, ridge after ridge at night, which is, you know, about as harrowing and difficult as it sounds, not even counting the 20 degree below zero temperatures. You know, their weapons aren't functioning properly because the lubricant is freezing. It's actually too cold for the oil in the weapons and all the other factors that you could imagine applying in this situation. It's just this incredible moment of like a, of a, bat, a battlefield conference that, that, that does not result in you know, caution and hesitation, but actually the kind of the most aggressive and sort of insane course of action you can imagine. But in a circumstance where that's the only thing that makes sense, they're going to do a route clearance. They're going to do night route clearance in reverse through divisions of Chinese. And it, it, I mean, they take a ton of casualties, of course, but they maintain the first Marine division maintains its unit integrity and walks out, walks out with its equipment and it's wounded. Well, your comment about hesitation, I interpret as allusion to something MacArthur says, which is that councils of war breed timidity, which is something his father had told him. And he recalls this moment. He recalls this advice when he's debating to the extent MacArthur debated 
the Incheon landing with his top Navy and Marine Corps and Army staff. And this this doesn't really come out in Fehrenbach's treatment of it so much as Halberstam's treatment in a book called Coldest Winter. But this is incredibly sort of like emotional appeal. And this is where MacArthur does deserve credit, right? Like he he had conceived of the Incheon landing in the earliest days of the war. It gets delayed because the American forces are, are getting crushed on the battlefield. But he, against the advice of all of his top lieutenants, you know, amidst the ambivalence at best of the, the Joint Chiefs and the White House, decides to make this massive gamble. And in the Halberstam account, he makes this very emotional appeal to the Navy, saying the Navy had, had never let me down in World War II. It's, I know it's not going to let me down now, but it was incredibly gutsy call. Some, some historians argue that it sort of planted the seeds of his later hubris, which results in him ultimately getting fired. Part of what we argue in our piece is that one of the three lessons of the Korean War is that while MacArthur deserved to be fired, his basic point at the time was we, th we should either get out or we should be all in in order to win this war. And that's why he wanted to expand the war to include bombing Chinese supply lines in Manchuria, for example. The risk of that, of course, was uh, general war. And I think that's what bred a lot of the timidity in the Truman administration. But what happened is this two-year period, which people tend to gloss over, right? Because the history of the Korean War is usually initial invasion, Pusan perimeter, Inchon landing, you know, chosen reservoir, yada, 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 armistice. Well, the yada, yada, yada is two years of brutal, brutal combat as we're negotiating under the UN cloak in over 500 meetings where people are dying on all these 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 hills. We're playing king of the mountain, to use T.R. Fehrenbach's phrase, in places like Baldy, Porkchop Hill, Heartbreak Ridge, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's probably the more provocative of the three arguments. Yeah, yeah, it seemed to really trigger the CCP too. For, I have to say, I've, I've taught a fair amount over the years. This is the first class I have ever taught where real-time pushback from a foreign adversary became part of the class because the, the, the way in which I introduced you at the start of this podcast, so our article for foreign affairs goes up in the middle of the week. And within 24 hours, China Daily, which is a, you know, an English language mouthpiece of the, of the Chinese Communist Party, publishes an unsigned editorial attacking the piece viciously and, and you specifically as, a, as the second coming of MacArthur, which is, as Matt Continetti put it last week, it's not clear to him that that's a bad thing to be compared to Douglas MacArthur. But in any event, you know, I left, I have to say, I left this experience much more critical of the Truman administration than I, than I came into it. I had, you know, with, I, I hadn't made the serious study of the period that you did, but my general view was, you know, containment seems to have worked out. Cold War liberal, you know, soured on the Soviets, you know, soon enough at least, and uh, built the structures that more or less over a very long period of competition carried the day. But when you zoom into Korea, you zoom into a very unflattering part, I think, of the Truman record. And of course, Truman was deeply unpopular through these years. And there's a way in which the academic uh, or historical consensus on Truman has sort of forgiven him for a lot of this stuff and forgotten the political passions of the day. And part of me thinks, well, actually, they deserve they deserve to be rem remembered a bit because they these passions existed for a reason. I mean, the administration and Truman personally are, you know, in some ways, importantly responsible for the war beginning through their lack of clarity when it comes to deterrence. You have Dean Acheson's famous speech where he describes the security perimeter for the United States and the Pacific. He leaves South Korea and Taiwan off of the list, which plays a role in Stalin deciding to allow Kim Il-sung to try his hand. So you have a deterrence failure. You have the readiness failures that we were we were discussing already here on the podcast in terms of a military that's really unprepared to fight. 
And then, as you point out, you have this two-year period, which is just glossed over in history, but is this brutal period of the war of, of, of stalemate that is essentially self-imposed. And, and one area where Fehrenbach, I don't think, does full justice to the historical record, at least in the way he emphasizes things in his book, because he's very focused on the infantry war and he's an infantryman and he wants, I mean, this is what he's writing about. But he doesn't, I think, do credit to what the record shows in terms of the, the punishing effect of American air power on first the North Koreans and then later the Chinese. I mean, Chinese accounts of the war focus on the role of American air power, focus on the misery that American air power generated for them, how it made it impossible for them to operate like any military normally would. They have to travel at night. They're traveling off the roads. They have to build these World War I-style fortifications. And even so, they are taking losses such that by the spring-summer of 1951, they're kind of on the ropes. I mean, they, they shot their shot. The North Koreans shot their shot, then the Chinese came in to save them and shot their shot in the winter of 50-51. And they've got very little left in the tank in the summer of 51. And that is when negotiations begin at the Truman administration's request. General Ridgway commanding asks for talks to begin out on a ship at sea. The North Koreans and Chinese refuse and insist that negotiations start at a place south of the 38th parallel, one of the few places where communist forces remain south of the parallel. And they proceed to engage in the most outrageous delays and provocations and bad faith conduct in these talks. And the American negotiators being American negotiators, being sort of Western liberals who have come in good faith to talk about peace, allow themselves to get played with. Base, I mean, I'm oversimplifying here, but basically for two years, failing to recognize the sophistication with which the communists are integrating what they're doing at the negotiating table and what's actually happening on the battlefield. It's a shameful episode. And ultimately, Dwight Eisenhower comes in, starts threatening to do exactly what Douglas MacArthur said he wanted to do. It's not the only factor, but it is a factor in the fact that the war ends pretty swiftly thereafter. That's my diatribe. That's what I walked away from having having learned and what, what we write about in Foreign Affairs. I, do, I don't disagree with any of it, ex except I feel like part of your criticism of Truman is that you, you wish NSC 68 had just gone further in, in its rhetoric and in the funding thereof. And remember, there was no there was no budget associated with NSC 68. It was estimated at $40 billion when the cap on defense spending at the time was around $13 billion. Whereas I have sort of, always felt that NSC 68 was, the language is inspiring, but it's a, it's a strategically incoherent document in that it doesn't meaningfully link ends, ways, and means. And it took Eisenhower to sort of bring balance to the force. I'm influenced by uh, two historians on this point, Robert Bowie and and Richard Immerman. Regardless, one of the more fun moments of the course was to take the students through Eisenhower's famous I shall go to Korea speech in Michigan in 1953 and kind of sort of debate the, the political nature of the speech versus the geopolitical nature of the speech. And there again, Wisconsin's lurking in the background because prior to that, Wisconsin, Ike had been forced to campaign with Joseph McCarthy from the 8th District of Wisconsin and manage, manages to actually go to Korea, do a battlefield tour, and then ultimately arrive at an armistice that I think part of the, the, the counterfactual we'll never be able to answer is whether anyone besides Eisenhower could have done that. Because Eisenhower was, of course, leveraging his military experience. One thing that I, I think is clear, if you analyze the war from the perspective of the communists involved, they, they didn't really know how to deal with this American general that was now now president. And then another big thing happens uh, in April of 53, which is that, or March of 53, sorry, March or March. April, Stalin dies, March 6th. Or is that Shaquille O'Neal's birthday? I <laughs> Check me on that. 
loyal listeners, which then throws everything into confusion. Eisenhower, I, I think, sort of brilliantly seizes the moment to launch this peace offensive. He delivers a chance for peace speech, which I think was less of like based on a sincere hope that there will be peace and more an element of political warfare against the Soviet Union to keep them on the back foot. But ultimately, I think Eisenhower comes out looking pretty good from the incident. We did also, in another weird coincidence, on Thursday, when we were teaching this portion of the conflict, sort of the end of the war and the armistice, it happened to be the 70th anniversary of the signing of the armistice. And so we went down to the Korean War Memorial, which I highly recommend to anybody in Washington, D.C. It doesn't get the attention that the Vietnam War Memorial or certainly the Lincoln Memorial does, but it's a great memorial. And we we observed the ceremony. I thought I was going to be observing the ceremony, yeah. but I then got impressed into service and had to deliver an impromptu speech. One of, one of your colleagues, I don't know if I should be kind here and not name names. There was a member of the United States Senate who was supposed to be the keynote speaker. He did not appear. And uh, you and I were standing on the side of the ceremony observing when the, the, the I have to say, the very well-organized and observant members of the foundation who you know were responsible for the memorial and the ceremony spotted you, spotted you in the crowd and essentially asked if you wanted to give the, the keynote address, which how could they know? How could they know you spent the last six months learning, you know, everything there was to know about the Korean War and, and proceeded to give you're 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 obviously a very talented extemporaneous speaker. That's that's not surprising. But I think what's surprising to them was just how deep you could go off the cuff on the Korean War. It was a great performance. Well I did I was didn't want to do it because I, I like to prepare, but then I had this thought, if ever there was a moment where I could speak extemporaneously about the Korean War, it is on this day, this Thursday on the 70th anniversary. I just happened to know the material. So, but it was a great ceremony and the, shout out to the organizers and the Korean ambassador and everyone who was there as well as the veterans, both Republic of Korea, as well as American veterans who were in the audience. And it was really cool yeah. to talk to those guys. And our, I think part of our goal in teaching this course and doing this podcast and writing about it is to ensure that the forgotten war is indeed not forgotten. If for no other reason, even if you disagree with us that the lessons aren't relevant, what still matters, to quote Fehrenbach, is that it happened. And I take that kind of in two sen senses. One, it's that we should seek to avoid deterrence failures in the future and make sure that wars don't happen. And two, notwithstanding everything else, you still have remarkable acts of bravery and courage and, and really a human drama underlying all of it. And it's important that we don't forget those sacrifices and ensure they weren't made in vain. And just to take it back to where we started, it's not forgotten in China. They have not forgotten the Korean War. They are studying it. They are talking about it. They take it as a source of national pride that they stopped, you know, in their view. And there's, you know, there's some truth to this. They stopped the American behemoth almost immediately after the end of their own civil war and, and ground us to a stalemate, ground us to a halt. One final point on that. In the 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 CCP op-ed attacking our article, attacking my honor and expounding on my madness and arrogance, there was a line where they said that the only thing that's changed between now and then, I'm paraphrasing, is that China has grown stronger. And I actually agree with that. I mean, that there is, China has made incredible investments in their military. They, I believe, are studying the friction that Putin is encountering in Ukraine right now, uh, and they are preparing uh, to achieve what is Xi Jinping's lifelong ambition, which is to take over Taiwan by force if necessary. And if Ukraine has taught us anything, it's that we should pay attention when dictators tell you what they're going to, to do. So yet another reason why the Korean War should be 
studied, and we should pay attention to what CCP leaders are are doing and, and why they're studying it. Uh, Mike Gallagher, in addition to all of your already extremely impressive accomplishments, you have now achieved the status of a of a multi-time School of War guest, joining an elect group of scholars and statesmen. So if you, I think if you do five, you get a set of steak knives. But we appreciate you coming on, as always. And there you go. Who'd you get that uh, right now on, on the? I, on, I have to have to have <laughs> steak knives on my desk right now from my wife's old the, apartment. The podcast is audio only, but for everyone, Congressman Gallagher did just produce a set of steak knives here on the other side. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate the conversation and uh, to be continued. Thank you. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.